0: Well, two things before we dig into God's Word this morning. First, I want to thank those of you who made this last-minute move indoors happen. So the AV team, uh, the deacons, I know many others as well. Thank you for your flexibility. I hadn't checked my email yesterday until mid-afternoon and discovered a whole thread, a whole email chain of, hey, we need to move inside, it's going to rain, and... Um, Very thankful that we were, that you all were able to make that happen for us. And then second, we are nearing the end of our series on Philippians. So after today, uh, the plan is two more sermons to, to wrap up Philippians. And then beginning June 6th, we'll start a new series called Meals with Jesus. So much of Jesus' ministry was done in the context of meals. Many of the parables he told uh, had to do with meals. And so these meals in Jesus' life reveal much about who he is, what he came to do, and the kind of kingdom he came to establish. And so uh, we'll be looking at different scenes in the Gospels um, dealing with meals with Jesus. So something for you to, to look forward to this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're looking at just two brief verses today, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read them for you, and then we'll ask for the Lord's help one more time as we come to His Word. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 8, Paul speaking to his Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Our God and Father, we do come before you once again as we are gathered around your word. Your word is perfect. It revives our souls. Your word is sure. It gives us wisdom. Your word is right and pure. And we ask that this morning you would give us understanding. That you would work by your spirit in our minds, in our hearts, so that we might know and love And delight in you more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes Stephanie will ask me what I'm thinking about. She can tell by the look on my face that there's something going on in my head, or at least maybe something going on in my head. And and often I will reply, nothing. And of course, it's not really true, is it? It's almost impossible not to be thinking. We're always thinking. In fact, research done last year suggests that the average person has more than 6,000 distinct thoughts every day. That's a lot of mental activity. No wonder so many of us come to the end of the day and we're, we're exhausted. Now. I'll confess, I'd be really hard-pressed to account for those 6,000 thoughts each day. If at the end of the day you ask me, what have you been thinking about today? Um, often I wouldn't be able to tell you. We are inundated with loads of information each day, aren't we? Text messages, uh, tweets, emails, news articles, app notifications, phone calls. And it seems like there's just flurries of thoughts Swirling around in our heads, and maybe you feel like I do you there 's a bustle of activity but but really um, far less deep reflection, very little concentrated thought and that 's not just mentally exhausting that 's actually detrimental to your soul it 's almost impossible to experience the life of joy and peace in Christ that Paul's been talking about here in the book of Philippians, especially in chapter 4, uh, without slowing down to think, to reflect, especially on, on God and His Word. And we saw last week that Paul urges us to turn our anxieties into prayers. Don't be anxious. Instead, bring your your request before God, and he holds out this promise in verse 7 that God's peace will guard our hearts and minds as we trust Him. And then this week in verses 8 and 9, he invites us to slow down, to think deeply. We could say to cultivate the habit of Christian meditation. And there's another promise. You can see it there at the end of verse 9, as we learn to think and reflect and meditate on God and His Word. We will experience the peace of God's presence. And isn't that what you want? As a a Christian man, Christian woman, don't you want to have the peace of God and the presence of God be more than just these theological ideas that we assent to and actually have them be lived realities in our day-to-day lives? Well, Paul talks about that here. Meditation is one of those practices, a habit of grace, like like prayer and, and other things by which we experience God's help and presence in our lives. And it, it's essential to a healthy, stable, joyful Christian life that weathers the ups and downs of life in a fallen world. And so, as we look at these two brief verses today, we're going to look at what Paul has to say about our thought life, about Christian meditation, and we'll look at, at four aspects. Earlier, Nate looked at the, the outline in the bulletin and said, hey, there's no points in your sermon, and I certainly hope it's not pointless. We're going to consider four aspects of Christian meditation, the, the practice of meditation, the content of meditation, the purpose of meditation, and then finally, the promise of meditation. So, practice, content, purpose, and promise. So first, the practice of meditation. Look again at verse 8. The, the main idea there in verse 8 comes at the very end. There's this list of virtues that Paul begins with, whatever's true, honorable, just, and so on. And then right there at the very end of the verse, he says, Think. Think about these things. And, and not just a passing thought. But serious reflection, give them careful attention. The, the word he uses here for, for think about means consider, ponder, let your mind dwell on these things. We could say meditate on them. Now, I don't know what you hear when you hear the word meditation. Some Christians are very uncomfortable with that word. It, it brings to mind images of a person sitting on the ground with their legs crossed, eyes closed, palms turned upward, maybe chanting something to themselves. We typically associate meditation with Eastern religions, New Age spirituality. But actually, meditation is an ancient Christian practice, a very biblical practice, The classic biblical text on meditation, Psalm 1, you, you probably know it well. The blessed person, the truly happy person is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. And on His law He meditates, Psalm 1-2 says. On His law He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. God's people meditate on His Word. And Christian meditation is, is much different than other popular forms of meditation. You know, it, it's not about emptying your mind. You know, the the popular forms of meditation are are about being silent and trying to banish thought from your mind and uh, achieving some kind of oneness with the universe. And Christian meditation is much different. It's not about emptying, it's about filling the mind. With God's truth. Paul says here, think about these things. And it involves chewing on God's word, um, mulling it over in your mind, ruminating on it, on its truth, reflecting on it, seeking understanding and wisdom from it, applying it to yourself. It's a very active practice, not, not passive like other kinds of meditation. Now, why meditate. What's the aim of meditation? Why is Paul calling on his Christian readers to give thought and careful reflection to these things? Well, have you ever read the Bible and then been unmoved by it? Yes, it it happens to all of us, doesn't it? You know, maybe you, you read a chapter or a few verses... And your heart's just left cold. You know, you, you read something like, The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And you think, oh, that's a nice thought. You know, I think I have to get the oil changed in the car today. You know, just, it it's like just bounces right off of you. This is where meditation comes in. Uh, A Puritan, Thomas Watson, Puritans were were experts, it seems, at meditating on God's Word. He said, the reason we come away so cold from reading the Word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. That's the aim. Of meditating on God's word to to warm the heart to fire up the heart to to delight and to um, to delight in God's word. It, it, meditation moves God's truth down into our hearts so that it it shapes our desires so that it shapes our affections. It it makes God's word more uh, meaningful to us so that we don't just read, yeah, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Hey. Um, does it really make an impact? So that it changes the way we think, the way, the things we want, the way we live. Uh, one author uses the analogy of a cup of, t- um, <clears throat> cup of tea. You know, reading and hearing the Word of God is like quickly dipping a tea bag into the hot water. Some of the flavor from the, the tea bag is absorbed, but not much. Meditation, on the other hand, is like immersing the bag in the water and letting it steep and, and leaving it in and so that the the rich flavor, all the rich flavor of the tea is extracted. And isn't that what you want for your Bible reading, for your reflection on God's word? Not just, you know, gathering information and, and filing away Another tidbit of, of data, but being strengthened and invigorated by God's Word. Having your, your spiritual taste buds awaken so that Christ becomes more precious, more real to you. Well, meditation is a means God's given to us for that to happen. And Paul says, think about these things, dwell on these things, reflect on these things. Well, what does that look like? And real quickly before we move on to the next point, let me give you four questions you can use to help you meditate on God's Word. Most of you are probably familiar with the acronym ACTS, ACTS. We often use it for prayer. It works for meditation as well. You know, read a passage of Scripture, pick a verse or two that stood out to you, and then ask these questions. A, adoration. How can I love and praise God based on this? How do I, what does it show me about His goodness and His grace and His love? And, and how can I praise Him? C, confession. What sin? Does this reveal what what wrong thoughts or emotions or behaviors uh, should I seek forgiveness for? T, thanksgiving. How can I thank God because of this? And then finally S, su- supplication. What should I ask God for based on this? How should I pray? And, and think through those things so that the you don't just read a verse... And move on, but you start to extract the, the grace that's there for you, the wisdom, the understanding, and then try to answer those questions and then turn them back to God in prayer. Now, it's not a formula with a guaranteed uh, guarantee of spiritual experience, but, but as you cultivate the practice of meditation, as you, as you learn to dwell and reflect and consider and ponder God's Word, you'll find it becoming more meaningful to you. The The oil change that you have to do later in the day will be less... At the forefront of your thinking, uh, no longer will they just be words on a page, but but food for your soul. Words of life, and and your experience of God's peace and, and presence will grow deeper, more more regular. So first, the practice of meditation. Paul says, "Think about these things," and second, the content of meditation, the content of meditation. You'll notice there in verse 8 that Paul points to some very specific categories of things to meditate on. You know, what do you do with that avalanche of information that comes at you each day, all the thoughts that you wrestle with? How do you decide What's worth devoting attention to? What should be ignored? Well, here's a a grid to filter it through. Paul lists six virtues and then two summary statements. And I'm just going to run through them quickly. Number one, he says, whatever is true, obviously in contrast to what is false and deceitful or misleading. Whatever accords with reality as God defines it. Number two, he says, whatever is honorable, things worthy of respect, things that are noble and and dignified, not the trivial and the frivolous. Number three, he says, whatever is just, that is what is right and fair and equitable, things that are in line with God's standards of justice and righteousness. Number four, he says, whatever is pure. Fix your thoughts on things that are untainted by evil, uncorrupted um, by, unstained by moral corruption. Number five, whatever is lovely. He moves really now from the moral realm to, to aesthetics, things that are pleasing and admirable and, and beautiful. You could think of a, a Beethoven symphony or a, a work of art. Number six, whatever is commendable, that is well spoken of, praiseworthy. And then after that long list, he adds, if there's any excellence, in other words, not, not professionalism, but moral excellence, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these kinds of things, Paul says. Now... Notice, he says over and over again, whatever, whatever, whatever. Paul's telling us to cast our intellectual nets widely. We're to be on the hunt for what is true and good and beautiful wherever it's found. Now, of course, God's Word is the ultimate measure, right? The ultimate measure of... What is good and true and beautiful and scripture ought to be the main object of our meditation, but not the only object of our meditation. God's good creation is a ripe field for meditation. You know, this world that God has created, it's a glow with, with God's glory and goodness. And you remember Jesus taught us to meditate on creation. Do you remember he pointed to the birds and he used the birds to teach lessons about God's fatherly care for his children. And I, I have, I'll make a little confession. I enjoy bird watching. I usually try to get out about once a week to, to do some bird watching and I know this is total nerd stuff. I get it. I'm not ashamed of it. But I think observing the, the beauty and the uniqueness of different birds, their colors, their features. It's expanded my appreciation for God's power, for His creativity. Uh, my delight in His perfections and excellencies have increased. Um, you, you think about it. The, the God who has filled this world with such wonder, such beauty, such variability, He Himself must be pretty amazing. Uh, a God before whom we can bow in awe and wonder and delight. I was pleased this, this past week to learn, I'm not alone in this, the British pastor and evangelist John Stott was a lifelong birdwatcher. He even wrote a book about it. The Birds Are Teachers, Biblical Lessons from a Lifelong Birdwatcher. We, we can look around at the world that God has made and, and meditate and think and, and learn about God and His goodness. Uh, even art, literature, music, so on, are, are worthy objects of meditation and appreciation. And, and they don't have to be explicitly Christian. You know, all people are created in the image of God, and, and that image has been marred, no doubt. That image has been distorted by sin, but not completely erased. And even people who do not know God through Christ can reflect the image of their Creator by producing things that are true and good and beautiful. Often unwittingly, they don't know that they're reflecting the image of their Creator, but those, those things that they produce are, are worthy objects of meditation we can put on our scripture spectacles and view God's world through the lens of his truth and see really that it's all a theater of his glory as John Calvin used to say this world is full of object lessons about the the love of God the goodness of God the kindness of God And of course, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all these qualities that Paul tells us to give our attention to. He is truth with a capital T. You remember he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the just one who gave himself for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, so that he might give to us his righteousness. He's He, above all else, is, is the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. He's the pure and spotless lamb who gave himself as a sin offering for us so that we might become pure in Him. And so Paul says, think about these things. Meditate on Scripture. Meditate on the world through the perspective of Scripture and and perhaps above all else, and especially meditate on the perfections of Jesus Christ. You know, to use that, that language from Thomas Watson Warm your heart at the fire of meditation on Jesus. You know, Draw up into yourself like that tree in Psalm 1 whose roots are, go down deep. Draw up the, the truth about Christ's love for you into your heart, into your life, so that it begins to actually shape the way you think and feel and, and live. You know, meditate on the truth about His mercy and, and grace. Meditate on the truth about who you are in Christ. Beloved, forgiven, justified, adopted, bound for glory. Dwell on these things. And so the, we've seen the practice of meditation, the content of meditation. Third, let's consider the purpose of meditation. The goal of meditation isn't merely to satisfy intellectual curiosity. You know, it's not about accumulating, or not simply about accumulating information, knowledge for its own sake. It's about transformation, the shaping of of character and conduct. You think of what Paul says in Romans 12, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Look at what he says here in in verse 9. After saying, dwell, think about these things, he he goes on to say, what you have learned and received, so that's pointing to his instruction, and heard and seen in me, pointing to his example, practice these things. So so Paul had taught about and modeled for them the, the kinds of things he he listed in verse eight as well as other truths and now he says put them into practice. You see, Paul does not separate thinking and doing. And we tend to separate the two, you know, depending on, on your personality, depending on your interests, you might be inclined more towards one than the other. You know, some Christians are—they are, love the Bible, love theology, love doctrine. They—they they love to study this whole idea of of devoting oneself to contemplation and reflection. That just sounds like the best thing on earth. And then the the practical side, the, this whole what Paul is saying, put this into practice is kind of like ah, that's not really my thing. You know, sometimes we can, we can resemble an orange stuck on the top of a toothpick. So just picture that in your mind. You know, big heads, and yet, uh, that's not being transferred into our lives. Others, think, you know, this meditation stuff, that all sounds way too cerebral. You know, just tell me what to do. I, I just want to get my hands doing something. And, and Paul shows us here we need to, to keep these two together, the thinking and the doing. What you think shapes how you live. Yeah, it, um, that's why this practice Of meditation is so important. That's why the Bible over and over again tells us to think. Don't you know, consider, Paul again and again urges his readers, as he does here, to think because our thinking is like the rudder of a ship. It it directs where we go. It directs what we do. You think of Jesus in in Matthew 12 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The the outward conduct comes from the inner life. Even in the scripture reading earlier from Proverbs 4, uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He makes this connection between thoughts and deeds. He does it numerous times, but you think about how Jesus connects the, the act of murder with its beginnings in, in angry and hateful thoughts. Our thoughts shape our desires, our affections. They almost always direct the will. Well, another way to put it is this. You become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. Maybe you've noticed um, married couples, especially those that have been married for a good length of time, they start to resemble each other, don't they? And I don't really mean physically, although sometimes that seems to happen too. But I, I think it's just a trick of the eye. But, but a man and a woman who have been in this close relationship for a long time, they, they begin to talk alike. They begin to think alike. They, they have similar mannerisms. It, and they're not mimicking each other. It's just that they've, they've been together so long. They, they've been in such close proximity for so long that their personalities have just shaped the other without even really consciously thinking about it. And there's a similar dynamic at play in our thought lives. Paul put it this way in Second Corinthians 3.18, he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one, deg- one degree of glory to another. So he says, as we behold the glory of Christ, that's, that's meditation language, that's reflection language, as we see His glory in, in His Word and among His people, we're being shaped by it, transformed, he says. We become like Christ as we dwell on Christ. And so, you think about this process of sanctification, which is is what Paul's dealing with here. Thinking, reflecting on, on the good, the true, and the beautiful, and then putting it into practice. This process of becoming more like Christ, growing in godly character and behavior. It is most certainly a gracious work of God by His Spirit, but He uses means. He uses means and things like meditation and other habits of grace. He he put employs these things to change us. And so it's meditation for the purpose of transformation. That's what Paul's talking about here. Holding together the, the thinking and the doing. So the practice of meditation, the content of meditation, the purpose of meditation, and then fourth and finally, and we'll close with this, the promise of meditation. There's a promise attached to the end of verse 9. Paul says, the God of peace will be with you. Verses 8 and 9 are sandwiched between promises of peace. You know, verse 7, which we looked at last week, Paul says, Don't worry, pray, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And then here he says, think about these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's doing here. Paul's not saying that, that prayer and meditation, a, a life of prayer and contemplation, will secure peace with God. If you will just devote yourself to, to rigorous praying and, and, and deep contemplation, God will accept you and will be at peace with you. No. No. Christ has made peace between a holy God and sinful human beings. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself is our peace. It, peace with God doesn't come from stunning piety. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's talking here, not about peace with God, but experiencing the peace of God, the help of God's presence. And he's saying here, look, as as we learn to fix our minds on God our Father, the our ever-present helper and protector, as we learn to, to dwell on things that are true and good and beautiful and, and lift our sights up to Christ and His glory, as we fix our minds on these things, we begin to experience more consciously God's peace and God's presence. And, and Paul's exhortation in these verses to think deeply it, to meditate. It's not a new law to burden your conscience, and in case anybody's misunderstood or got the wrong idea, I, Paul and, and I are not urging you to, to spend an hour each day contemplating God's Word so that you can enjoy His peace and presence. Um, I'm not urging you to lead monkish lives of contemplation. We all have vocations, callings, things that God has given us to do that we must do, that we must give our time and attention to. If, if you're a busy mom with young kids, it might mean five minutes. It might just mean a couple snatches of time throughout the day as you're able. But what Paul is, is doing here is, is holding out an invitation to cultivate a, a habit, a way of life, a, a habit of grace. To, to walk a path where God promises to meet us. Where God promises to meet us with His peace, with His presence, with His help, with His grace and His mercy. So that we can be like the, the person that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 26.3, the, the person whose, whose mind is, is set on the Lord, whose mind is fixed on the Lord, and whom the Lord keeps at perfect peace. And so, Paul says here, think. Reflect dwell on God's Word and ways and enjoy His peace and His presence. So let's pray and ask that God would make it so in our lives. Our God and Father, we thank You that You have sought us out by Your Son, Jesus Christ, and redeemed us and made us new by the work of Your Holy Spirit, including the renewal of our minds. We ask that You would enable us to give our attention to the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and commendable. Lord, would You grant us the ability and the, the, the desire and the follow-through to, to give time to meditating on your word to, to sucking up the, the nutrients and the food and the, the life-giving nourishment that you hold out to us through your word. Would you make us, Lord, like that tree by the streams of water that is fruitful in its season? Would you help us, Lord, to, to have the truth of Christ and the truth of who we are in Christ come and, and shape us and mold us and, and change us, Lord, so that Your Word is not just uh, words on a printed page, but living realities in our lives. We, we ask that You would make it so through Jesus our Lord. Amen.